0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them.
1: Hi, this is Kurt Repinchek, your host at National Parks Traveler. It's Labor Day weekend, and that means crowds in many national parks, particularly at Zion in Utah. And along the east coast, units of the national park system in Florida have been bracing for Hurricane Dorian, There also was a sizable rock fall in Zion this past week that injured three park visitors. And 55 bison from Yellowstone National Park found a new home at the Fort Peck Indian Reservation in northern Montana. You can find those and other stories about the parks at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I talk with Dr. Jennifer Smetzer about her work to map areas of Acadia National Park that could offer refuge from climate change for plants and animals native to the park on the coast of Maine. My colleague Erica Zambello joins me to discuss some great fall destinations in the park system, and we end this week's show with a commentary about e-bikes in the National Park System. As the climate changes, it impacts plants and animals. Their habitat changes to adapt to warmer or hotter weather, or more or less moisture in the form of rain or snow. Vegetation that long was familiar could disappear and be replaced by different varieties. Seasons could lengthen or shorten. There are places, though, where climate change doesn't exert tremendous impacts, and so the resident plants and animals are not forced to seek out new habitats. These places are called refugia. At Acadia National Park, Jennifer Smetzer has been working to identify refugia for the park's plants and animals. Jenny, who studied bird migration in the Gulf of Maine for her doctoral research, has been building maps of potential climate change refugia for a wide range of species. Species such as black-throated green warbler, olive-sided flycatcher, American bittern, northern flying squirrel, red spruce, northern white cedar, and even paper birch, Earlier this summer, Jenny, who was a 2018 Second Century Stewardship Fellow at the Scudic Institute, met with biologists and managers from the national park, as well as personnel from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, local land trusts, and the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife to discuss her mapping. Today, Jenny joins us to discuss her work and what it could mean for the future of Acadia National Park's plants and animals. Welcome to the Traveler, Jenny.
2: Thanks for having me, Kurt.
1: I'm curious, of course, right off the bat, um, how did that meeting go with uh, the biologists and managers for the various agencies involved in this?
2: Yeah, the the meeting was pretty well received. There was a lot of interest in the data products that we made um, that were the result of this research. And there was a lot of enthusiasm uh, across a lot of different groups for people working together and thinking about how they could apply these results to their management. Um, and I think that there was a lot of interest and it spurned a lot of conversations on how the different agencies could be working together. The other thing I think that was really valuable is it provided a great, um, just an interesting new framework to sort of think about climate change and how, how we might plan.
1: And, and, and how, what do you mean by that?
2: Um, it just, it, well, you know, climate change is often a story of doom and gloom, right? And it's, it's easy to end up feeling like there's nothing that we can actually do. Um, I think a lot of people can lose hope from time to time, even the people that are fighting the trenches day to day to work to manage um, a lot of these natural resources. And so climate change refugia provides some sort of a, uh, one sort of a hopeful story for some of these species, at least in potential places that we might be able to uh, point some of our efforts and our resources uh, on the landscape to uh, more effectively maybe manage for these species.
1: Now, this might be a question um, out of your purview, but I know... You know, with the Park Service, um, when they go about managing their landscape and the wildlife and whatnot, uh, sometimes they have to go through a regulatory process to, uh, to accomplish new management plans. Do you get a sense that um, that will have to be necessary at Acadia if they adopt your, uh, your mapping and, and what it suggests in terms of protecting these refugia? Well,
2: we're not trying to add any extra work um, to their already uh, busy plates. I think that what we're trying to do is give them ways that they can help strategize in terms of projects that they're already undertaking. So the park, for instance, is uh, um, already experiencing a larger visit- visitation, um, has for the last many decades. And it's this is projected into the future. And this is something that is, is particularly projected for the quieter side of the park, the western portion of the park. And so one thing the park was thinking about doing, for instance, was taking some of these results and helping them to inform a transportation plan that they already had in the works. So hopefully this will not um, add to any uh, regulatory loophole, um, regulatory Mm -hmm. processes that they have to jump through, but will help to inform when they're already doing some of this work.
1: Um, How did you go about building your maps and what exactly do they show?
2: Uh, The the maps were the process of a statistical model, Um, the details of which aren't terribly exciting, but one of the really exciting things um, in this this modeling process is that all the data came from citizen science. So that was a really exciting part of the process for me, that I was able to take data that have been input into things like iNaturalist or GBIF, some EPA wetlands data, but a lot of it was... um, data collect- collected by citizen scientists. And so curating that data for data quality, for positional accuracy and things like that. And then basically we developed uh, models that explain, we, we look at the places where we know from sampling, where we know the animals or the plants were, and we're able to describe what kind of things those plants or animals like. For birds, it was different types of vegetative cover. Um, For many of the plant species, it was different types of soil characteristics of where those um, plants were found. And of course, for all the the organisms, we included climate variables. And then we could use that to say in places that we haven't surveyed currently, where might we expect to find the the organism and where might we not expect to find the organism based on the soil properties or the different things that the, the organism requires. And then we take those those same kinds of ideas and shift that into the future under the projections of what we think the climate is going to be like in the future. And I didn't personally make those climate predictions. These are the work of a lot of different other other, um, organizations, notably in the Northeast Climate Science Center at University of Massachusetts Amherst.
1: Now I know in in, in, um, Devil's Postpile National Monument, for example, there are some cold sinks there that the superintendent looked at as, as potential refugia, and she was um, developing her general management plan to protect those areas. How do you um, identify refugia in, in, in Acadia? I mean, are, are these cold sinks or, uh, I know you talked about the soils and whatnot, but how do you know that they, these areas won't be affected by climate change or won't be greatly affected?
2: So the climate projections are able to predict some of those types of features roughly at about a kilometer scale. So features like elevation and aspect, like a north-facing slope um, is predicted to remain a little cooler, for instance, into the future. Higher elevation sites. Um, Places generally closer to the coast are more buffered from um, more extreme swings in climate. Um, So Acadia with its coastal proximity and its uh, topographical relief, there were some of those aspects that were captured in the in the climate data uh, for current and future climate projections.
1: And I believe the, the park had some specific species that they wanted you to, to look at?
2: Yeah, there was a lot of interest in um, red spruce. This is a very iconic um, species in the area culturally and also of a lot of scientific um, interest, a very important species in the area. There are quite a few bird species, the ones that you Mentioned in the beginning, olive-sided flycatchers, fruited green warblers. Um, we tried to represent a range of different habitats. Um, so we had the the bitterns in there. These bittern, i uh, sorry, American bitterns. There were some shrub species that people were interested in, a black crowberry, and part of the interest in that people like the black crowberry. There's a lot of cultural interest in it, but it also is the uh, an important host species for. Uh, the crowberry blue, um, a Lepidoptera species that is not faring well currently it isn't expected to be highly vulnerable to climate change. Um, we didn't have enough data to model the the the, butter, the, uh, the lepidoptera, uh, the crowberry blue, but we could model its host species. And then uh, cinquefoil, three tooth cinquefoil, another plant species that is uh, of a lot of interest in Acadia to visitors, and it's found a lot of uh, at the top of a lot of these mountains, and it's currently the um, it's currently a species that they're helping to restore at the top of Cadillac Mountain.
1: Now, I know in, in past years we've reported on the traveler about the the warbler and, and how um, climate change could affect it by by changing the, the tree species that it uh, is related to. Are you optimistic, or does your your research point to areas of the park that would be able to retain that habitat for the warblers?
2: Yeah, so the, the the bird species, interestingly, particularly uh, the magnolia warbler is another one that I uh, forgot to mention, um, flycatcher that we, that we looked at, the lecture to green warbler, they fared a lot better than some of the other species under climate change, at least under um, a more moderate uh, climate future in terms of like there's some um, political action to slow and halt climate change to some degree. Interestingly though, the difference though for those species, we, we looked at um, RCP4.5, which is a more moderate climate future, and RCP-8.5 represented a con- concentration pathway, um, that is con- assumes business as usual and very little intervention in climate change. And uh, they fared. Um, there was a lot bigger difference for many of the bird species, so that really highlights the importance of policy and action in terms of. Uh, taking care of climate change for some of these species, whereas some of the shrub species fared poorly under both uh, climate futures. But for the shrub species, there certainly were um, really important coastal areas, and for the bird species, some important areas in Acadia um, and in that region in general that stood out as potential uh, climate change refuge
1: We've been talking today with Dr. Jennifer Smetzer. She's been working on a project at Acadia National Park to map out potential refugia for a wide range of plant and animal species in the park. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center. All set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org.
1: We're back with Dr. Jennifer Smetzer, who has been drawing up some maps for Acadia National Park that uh, pinpoint areas of the park that could serve as refugia for a wide range of uh, plant and animal species from uh, impacts of climate change. Uh, Jennifer, um, you had mentioned that uh, one area you've been asked to really look at is uh, the, the so-called quiet side or western side of uh, Acadia National Park. W- why is that? Why did they want you to look there?
2: Uh, the park is working on um, identifying how they're going to manage increases in park visitation over there. Um, and they're working on transportation planning. And I think a lot of um, focus on transportation planning will have to be in part on that, on that quieter side in terms of thinking about where they're going to um, direct people to, how they're gonna plan for transportation. So that was one of the areas that the park was particularly interested in applying some
1: of these results. And so how, how would um, uh, an area serving as refugia affect transportation in the park?
2: Um, it might be areas where they choose to um, do some trail maintenance or not do trail maintenance to either I mean, this is up for discussion, of course, across the, the people who manage the park, but places where they either might want to direct people toward for education to say, look, this is an area that might remain relatively stable in the future, and this is of interest and as, a, as an educational opportunity, an outreach opportunity, um, or direct um, visitation and recreation away from. If it's uh, an area that is a climate change refugia for species that are not, found in a lot of other places so things like that um where to build and where not to build um, parking and things like that these are all the kinds of things that they need to think about
1: so so both wheeled transportation so to speak and, and hikers yes yeah um
2: where trail maintenance might might be more or less required things like that
1: Yeah, yeah. Have you identified any species that is not likely to have refugia in Acadia, and so will eventually be forced out by climate change?
2: Let me think about that. Uh, No, of the list that we looked at, we tried to choose species that we didn't think were going to be completely eliminated from the region, or it wouldn't be really worth the work, but also wouldn't just be completely ubiquitous uh, across the area also into the future. So I think that the park biologists um, chose and directed the project in terms of really um, well thought out species. Um, There was one species that they were interested in having me look at uh, Bicknell's thrush, which isn't really found regularly at all in the park right now and won't be in the future. But we we projected these results throughout all of Maine. So they have have some species that um, we're interested in looking at throughout the larger um, landscape of Maine.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry, you said that uh, your your research kind of spans all of Maine, not just Acadia National Park?
2: Yeah, uh, the, the impetus of the project and the funding uh, for the project came from Acadia National Park, but when I made the prediction for different species, I made the predictions across all of Maine, so that um, above and beyond this project... I can reach out to managers at the state level who are um, working in forests across all of Maine and landscapes across all of Maine. And even uh, one, of the, one of the managers brought up at the meeting the interest in looking at a place like Acadia that is relatively pristine um, and thinking about it as a benchmark in terms of these climate change refugia for how to think about managing other areas of the state that are more working forests. <laughs>
1: Where does your work take you now? Are you finished with the mapping or is there still some um, field work to do, so to speak?
2: Uh, There's not a lot of field work to do left for this project and most of the species are mapped, um, but we're continuing this. A big part of this project was to really um, bridge the gap between the research um, realm and the management realm, um, a field called translational ecology. So really sitting down I spent a lot of time sitting down with managers um, and they helped design the project. They helped set the goals of the project and choose the species. They helped um, identify which variables they wanted to put in models. Uh, We talked about model interpretation um, together. And then I spent time up in Maine this summer talking to them about the results, helping them understand the results, um, thinking through the process of applying these climate change refugia the ground into management and that process is continuing so we're going to continue to work with these managers have future meetings to talk about actual incorporation of these into management plans some of these um, ideas into their management plans Um, there's a lot of interest in helping having using these results to help um, improve and guide where monitoring is going to occur where citizen science projects might occur and so i'm I'm gonna continue to work with uh, the park staff and other people in Maine, other managers in Maine, to implement some of these uh, concepts and some of these uh, landscape scale predictions in terms of refugia into their management plans.
1: Were there any surprises along the way?
2: Um, Were there any surprises along the way? Yeah, we were a little surprised at some of the results we saw with the tree species. Um, the models predicted that they would do a little better than uh, we initially expected. And then and that, that has been said um, that it has been predicted in, um, in other studies. And part of that might be that this was a more complex model that included a lot of forest growth processes um, and uh, didn't include just climate, it included a lot of forest growth processes and also Um, These models are at a finer spatial scale than um, a lot of previous forest modeling has occurred at. So perhaps um, the climate change refugia in some places are actually providing more of a hope.
1: Is this mapping work something that can uh, be translated to to other parks? Have you been contacted by other parks interested in in the same sort of uh, mapping?
2: Absolutely. And I should have mentioned this as one of the next uh, steps for this project um, not specifically this project, but this is really a pilot for doing the same kind of work in uh, all, all the other national parks. So, um, Dr. Tony Lynn Morelli at the Northeast Climate Science Center is heading up a project to do very similar work across all of the northeastern region national park service units. So that's really exciting. So we've we've gotten some great results and some great feedback from this project so far. So work is going forward to do similar similar sort of work across all those park units and to also think about in that project how um, movement might occur between some of those park movement uh, park units given uh, that species may blink out of some park units and expand into other park units.
1: We've been talking today with Dr. Jennifer Smetzer who has been drawing up some... Uh maps for refugia for plants and animals in acadia national park uh dr Metzer, i appreciate your time today it sounds like a fascinating project and uh um it'll be interesting to see if it if it plays out as uh, you expect
2: thanks for having me kurt
0: Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official non-profit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
1: It's still summer out there, but fall and winter really aren't that far off. And with that in mind, Erica Zambello and I have been thinking about fall excursions into the parks. And naturally, with Erica being in Florida and myself in Utah... We each have some of our own favorites. And Erica, one place I really, really love for spring and fall is Canyonlands National Park. I mean, the, the landscape is incredible. Um, it doesn't attract large crowds, and you go there in the fall and early winter and early spring, and the weather is so much cooler than um, the, this heart of summer, when it can get up over 100 degrees on a regular basis. The last time my wife and I went down there, we headed to the Needles District and that's in the the southern part of Canyonlands. And we actually found ourselves on a path, and it really wasn't much more than a goat path. Or actually, maybe for the setting, it was a desert bighorn sheep path. And the wind was swirling about us, and there was a lapis lazuli sky overhead. And we just played connect the dots with the small stack carns that looped across the sandstone amphitheater and took us higher and higher towards the roof of Canyonlands. I mean, really, you can't beat the fall for a Canyonlands National Park visit. As I said, the crowds are, are non-existent and the campgrounds are gorgeous and relaxing and you can really enjoy some solitude.
3: It's interesting that you say Canyonlands because when people think about what parks they wanna visit in the fall, they always think of leaf peeping. And so Great Smoky Mountains National Park is always very busy. Acadia National Park is still busy. So when it comes fall for me, I still try my best like you to avoid crowds. And that's why I tend to head to national seashores. So most of the time when people think about beaches, they think about summer. But as I'm sure many of you know, Florida is hot all the time. And so one of my favorite places to go in the fall is Gulf Islands National Seashore. So it is very close to a town that I lived in for four years. So I got to know it really well. It borders the Gulf of Mexico in Florida, but right near the Alabama border. But there's also some discreet patches that are in uh, Mississippi as well. And so what's awesome about Gulf Islands in the fall is you've basically avoided all the crowds because it's a summer destination. So parking is free, getting to the beach is free, Gulf Islands National Seashore in the Florida area also borders the Santa Rosa Sound, which is a bay-like ecosystem, which means the swimming is great, the fishing is great, the birding is great, and you don't have to fight anybody for that last parking space. So come fall, I'm headed to the beach.
1: You know, you're absolutely right. There is such an annual pull to head to the the leaf-peeping parks of the national park system. And they can be fabulous. But um, as the seasons stretch out, the shoulder seasons stretch out, they can also be ridiculously crowded. Um, You know, I wish I was close enough to some of the national seashores that you mentioned because uh, I like nothing better than uh, doing some surf casting and catching my dinner. Here in the Intermountain region, um, there are some great sleeper parks. Um, you know, People will go to Grand Teton, they'll go to Yosemite, they'll go to Leisure, Glacier, and they'll often find themselves standing in line or, or in parking jams. A great option is Theodore Roosevelt National Park up in uh, North Dakota. It's got a rugged landscape. It's got a rich cultural history. Um, this is where Teddy Roosevelt earned his conservation uh, mojo, so to speak. Um, the campgrounds are wonderfully peaceful and quiet. There's a nice bison herd. There's uh, uh, feral horses across the landscape. It, it's just a nice relaxing place that isn't too crowded. Um, another park that I would recommend is is Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve in, in Colorado. Um, again, it's it's kind of off the beaten path, and um, people might go there during the summertime to, to relax and enjoy the sand dunes and the... Uh, um, the, the mountains there, but uh, head there in the fall time and you can just have a spectacular experience with uh, with peacefulness and solitude and you still get a lot of the aspen color and um, the wildlife there.
3: Well, I'm going to take your two parks and raise you another national seashore. So this one is in the North Carolina Outer Banks and it's called Cape Hatteras National Seashore. So if people haven't been there, the Outer Banks of North Carolina is this crazy coastal formation, a very narrow strip of barrier islands that are way off the coast of North Carolina. And so, it's an incredible way to see a barrier island ecosystem. And again, in the fall, uh, you'll still have some people that are escaping you know, on the weekends and things like that, but generally, it's a lot less crowded. And one of the things that sets this national seashore apart from others is the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. It's this beautiful black and white structure for history buffs or people who just like lighthouses. If you're one of those people who has the lighthouse stamp books, and yes, those exist, this is a site that you can get a stamp, which is awesome. So I mentioned the black and white um, lighthouse, but there's actually three on the, on the in the park if that's something you're really interested in. You can climb up to the top depending on the weather and things like that. And it's just a really unique way to remember what people used to do when they lived out on these barrier islands without island technolo- without modern technology. Of course, it's also really fun to go swimming. And again, it's a, it's a fall migration hotspot for birds. So it's definitely a good place to check out in the fall.
1: Well, Cape Hatteras is okay, but um, if you really want a wild seashore, I don't think you can beat Cape Lookout, which is just south of Cape Hatteras. Um, It's not as developed as Cape Hatteras. There are no little towns on the Cape Lookout um, island, barrier island, if you will. You have to take what they call ferries over there, and there are some small um, ferries that you can take your cars onto. A lot of people will just um, ride these little skiffs, basically, that are um, called ferries over to the island and and spend the day or whatnot. But if you're really into fishing or, or some solitude, They've got cabins out there on the island, on the Barrier Island, and they're really designed for for anglers, for fisher folks, um, surf casters. They've got um, fish cleaning stations, um, just a short walk from the beach. Um, you can't beat that. And sure, the the cabins aren't uh, deluxe. They're they're largely um, plywood structures, and you have to bring your own bedding. But um, like I said, it's really got that wild sense to it. And you can envision what Cape Hatteras and Cape Cod looked like before they were settled and uh, a lot of development sprang up.
3: Well, that does sound like a good national seashore. But my question is, can you see rocket launches from that seashore? And the answer is no, because you have to go to Canaveral National Seashore on Florida's Atlantic coast for that. So it's true, you, the seashore can remain open for the launches that are scheduled during normal operating hours. This is something to check out ahead of time. Sometimes the park will fill to capacity, sometimes NASA has to close parts of the seashore, but in general, you can see rocket launches from this park. In addition, it's a great place to go paddling. You can access a lot of these inland estuaries, and you know, in addition to the fishing and birding that we've already talked about a lot, it's a great opportunity to see manatees, which are some of the most docile, gentle, cool marine mammals that we have in the United States. And so after you're done you know, paddling, looking for a manatee, swimming, you can check out the rocket launch and really have a unique Florida experience.
1: Now, you had to mention paddling, which if anybody knows me, they know that I am a hardcore paddler. I've been paddling for years. I was a raft guide on the New River back in college, way before the New River was a national river. Um, Most recently, um, we picked up some sea kayaks to add to our uh, flotilla. and, And that is one reason why I would go to Yellowstone National Park in the fall because you can just paddle off into the wilderness and escape all those crowds. Um, Shoshone Lake is, is a fabulous destination for paddlers, whether you're going with a, a sea kayak or a canoe. Um, there's uh, designated campsites out there that you can reserve, so you know you can have a place to come ashore and pitch your tent. At the far western end of Shoshone Lake is this incredible geyser basin. And unlike the, the geyser basins in, um, at Old Faithful or at Norris, This, you don't have any boardwalks. There's no fences to keep you from getting too close. And that can be a deadly situation. So it's a beautiful, gorgeous geyser basin, but you really have to keep your wits about you so you don't get too close and and fall through the thin crust there, which unfortunately more than a few people have done that and, and met with fatal consequences. Another great paddling trip in the fall is uh, the big lake, Yellowstone Lake. Um, I was down there one fall, and this was an incredible trip. I mean, it was uh, checked off my wildlife list practically. Um, When we got to our campsite, um, it was on this hillside or at the base of this hillside, and there was a big sprawling meadow, maybe 300 yards across, and in the middle was this huge grizzly bear just raking through the, the vegetation looking for something to eat. The next night, we woke at about 4 o'clock in the morning to a howling wolf. And if you've ever heard a howling wolf in the, in the wild, it is an incredible, incredible sound. There were sandhill cranes. We had deer coming through our campsite. It was just phenomenal. And so, yeah, that's, that's a great reason to go to Yellowstone in the fall. You get in your boat. You paddle away from the crowds. You enjoy solitude and, and the wonderful wild feeling of that big national park.
3: Well, you've officially convinced me, but I will just end with one more plug if people insist that they must have leaf peeping, and that's to check out Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument in Maine, perhaps instead of the more crowded Acadia National Park. Katahdin Woods and Waters was only established in 2016, so it's a relatively new addition to the national park system. It's right on uh, the Penobscot River, so you have those river views. There are views of nearby mountains. It's also right next to Baxter State Park, which means there's even more natural territory to explore. So at Katahdin, you can try to see a moose, catch a fish, and catch the leaves turning at the same time. But um, now I'm just wishing that I had more vacation days in the fall because I want to go to all these places that we've discussed and more.
1: There are some incredible destinations in the national park system, and what I'm going to try and commit to in the the coming year is try and get away from the name-brand parks and explore some of these lesser-known jewels, because there are some phenomenal destinations out there that uh, are really worth visiting. Um, As you know, I was up in Acadia National Park uh, um, a few weeks back, and uh, I had never been to the Skutik Peninsula, and I really didn't know what it was all about, and it was a gorgeous place and one of our one of the readers of the traveler kind of criticized me for pointing out what a gorgeous place it was with its beautiful campground and the the rocky coastline and the thick uh, jack pine forests and yeah that's kind of the the travel writers lament i mean you want to you want to expose these places but you don't want to expose these places because it will bring more people to them Unfortunately, um, the national park system is overcrowded in many areas. Not not across the entire system, but in places like uh, Yellowstone and Grand Teton and Glacier and Yosemite, and certainly the main um, Mount Desert Island portion of um, Acadia. And I think until and unless the park system um, moves to a reservation system for some of these places. I think we need to spread out these crowds, and and if we have to identify certain areas of the park system that uh, are gorgeous destinations, um, I think we should be doing that to help spread out the crowds and uh, gain, gain more appreciation for what we have out there.
3: Yeah, I agree, and I like what you said, too, about spending more time in these lesser-known gems. Sometimes it's hard to find lesser-known gems because, hello, they're lesser-known, So um, if you're a reader of the National Parks Traveler or a listener, we definitely try to bring people to these parks. But another great way is to purchase or borrow one of the National Park Passport books, either the small blue ones or the larger Centennial version. I use that to see smaller parks wherever I go. And I found these parks that I never would have known about in North Carolina, these different battlefields we in the middle of Minneapolis. There's this ancient lock system, which has National Park staff um, right there that can answer all your questions. So if you're looking for an easy way to see some new national parks, I highly recommend the National Park Passport books. Plus, it's honestly just fun to get the little stamps. It uh, delights the child inside of us all.
1: The stamps are definitely cool. I must admit, one of my hobbies is to collect those hiking staff medallions. I must have 20 or 30 of those small medallions, and I've been on the lookout for a hiking staff to attach them to. <laughs> You know, Erica, I think we've certainly hit on um, some prized jewels to visit in the National Park System in the fall and early winter months. And um, for for the listeners out there, um, send us a line, drop us a line at news at nationalparkstraveler.org with some suggestions you have for where folks might go in the fall and uh, discover some new um, jewels of the National Park System and we'll take those um, take those suggestions and, and write up some pieces and, and maybe talk to some of the park staff and um, bring some of the wonders out to the, the greater listenership and, and readership of the National Parks Traveler.
3: Yeah, sounds good. And until then, I guess I will see you and all our listeners in the parks.
1: Sounds good, Erica. Have a great time out there.
0: The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the Lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com.
1: And now, a commentary. When it comes to managing the national park system, the example before us is clearly not the right way. In this case, we're referring to Interior Secretary David Bernhardt and de facto National Park Service Director P. Dan Smith on, most recently, the topic of e-bikes in the parks. Bernhardt seems to treat the parks as his fiefdom to manage to the benefit of his industry friends. For Smith, well, he follows the Secretary's lead. Evidence of that arose at the end of 2018, when the partial government shutdown arrived. While the national park system was closed during past government shutdowns, Bernhardt wanted it open, and Smith agreed. They even agreed, after piles of garbage arose and restrooms turned disgusting, to divert Federal Lands Recreation Enhancement Act dollars to pay for custodial staff. We know now, of course, that keeping the parks open wasn't the best decision. One of Joshua Tree National Park's iconic trees was cut down. A backcountry traveler in Big Bend National Park broke his leg and was extremely fortunate to encounter an off-duty ranger who carried him on his back for two miles. And off-roaders went where they shouldn't in Death Valley National Park. How many other issues arose during the partial shutdown is hard to know, as Interior is dragging its feet on responding to Freedom of Information Act requests. That the Interior Secretary would open the gates to allow e-bikes to motor down park trails where traditional bicycles can roll shouldn't be surprising. Back in November 2018, During a meeting of the Made in America Outdoor Recreation Advisory Committee, one committee member, a vice president of Shimano North America Holdings, pointed out that interior policy at the time banned e-bikes from some areas of public lands because they were considered to be motorized vehicles. Draft minutes from that meeting note that he suggested that this specific case be used as an example to review existing DOI policy issues which prevent outdoor recreationists from using new technology on public lands. While it isn't surprising that Bernhardt issued a secretarial order last week to allow greater e-bike access, how he did and how Smith responded in a press release for the public and a directive to his superintendents are examples of how not to manage the parks, or any business for that matter. There had been an agreement to issue the policy this coming Thursday, But Bernhardt surprised more than a few folks, including some in the National Park Service, by releasing it last Thursday evening. In his secretarial order, Bernhardt said that within two weeks from last Thursday, all three classes of e-bikes must be exempted from being considered motorized vehicles within the park system. Within 30 days, Bernhardt went on, he wanted to see summaries of any policy changes needed to increase e-bike access to the parks, of any laws or regulations that stand in the way of such access, and a timeline for seeking public comment on changing any regulations to allow greater e-bike access. At that time, as well, he wanted the National Park Service to provide visitors with guidance on where they could ride their e-bikes. In other words, first grant e-bike access to park visitors and then explain how to make it neat and legal even though Bernhardt should have engaged the public, the various trail groups, communities around the parks, and other park users before he released the policy. Oh, and maybe he should have evaluated potential visitor conflicts, impacts to wildlife and cultural resources, and cost of enforcement. But that would have made his decision informed rather than seemingly haphazard. As for Smith, he sent out a press release Friday stating that the Park Service has, quote, a new electric bicycle policy for national parks, unquote. Never mind that under 36 Code of Federal Regulations, Section 1.5, the Park Service needs to go through rulemaking steps before it can adopt such a policy. But there's more that's baffling when you read Smith's press release and his directive to superintendents. For instance, it states that the operator of an e-bike may only use the motor to assist pedal propulsion. The motor may not be used to propel an e-bike without the rider also pedaling, except in locations open to public motor vehicle traffic. That begs the question of how many park rangers will be needed to monitor whether e-bikers are pedaling or not. Smith also wrote that park superintendents will retain the right to limit, restrict, or impose conditions of bicycle use and e-bike use in order to ensure visitor safety and resource protection over the coming month, superintendents will work with their local communities, staff, and partners to determine best practices and guidance for e-bike use in their parks. So, on one hand, Bernhard is calling for more access, as is Smith, unless superintendents disagree. And while Bernhard is calling for 30 days to pass before a public comment period is scheduled, Smith expects superintendents to get that done over the next 30 days. A tight schedule, to say the least, if all the steps are followed. But Smith is making it easy for superintendents to get by without much, if any, public comment. In a memorandum sent to them Friday, the acting National Park Service director said superintendents must add language to their compendia, that's the -the on-the-ground rulebook used in individual parks for managing uses, to allow e-bikes where traditional bikes are allowed and he even provided a fill-in-the-blank form for getting the job done. Furthermore, Smith directed superintendents to adopt existing state laws pertaining to e-bikes where their park is found. They also must comply with 36 Code of Federal Regulations Section 1.7, which pertains to public notice, he added. If only perhaps to say he wanted public comment. He also told them to adhere to the National Environmental Policy Act, Though Smith also pointed out that to meet Bernhardt's directive, superintendents will resort to making a categorical exclusion that shortcuts the process. What will be interesting to see is whether those parks that already have blocked e-bike use on trails will now be forced to do an about-face. At the end of the day, you can argue whether e-bikes have a place on hiking trails in the parks. But if you want to go through the rulemaking channels, established under the Code of Federal Regulations, and be circumspect with your decision-making, the approach Bernhard and Smith took is not the handbook to follow. The end result is not only a poor, disjointed example of how to manage America's best idea, but it does a disservice to all recreational users of the parks, including e-bikers. Instead of having a well-thought-out policy for recreation, this just muddies the waters poses a threat to resources and other park users, and could wind up in court. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can send comments and suggestions for future episodes to news at nationalparkstraveler.org. And to catch up on the latest National Park news, check us out at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
0: This collection is the number one selling national park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Traveler's podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas.